Welcome back to the Trojan Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Ryan Young, publisher at Trojansports.com, and your captain for this podcast. It has been a few weeks since our last show. I was on the road pretty much all of January at the All-American Bowl in San Antonio and then the Polynesian Bowl in Hawaii, which, yes, yes, it's tough work. It's a sacrifice I make for our subscribers to be out there in Hawaii, gutting it out for a week and a half, getting the recruiting updates that everyone wants. We are back. It's been a busy week at USC. We talked to Lincoln Riley on Wednesday for National Signing Day. We talked to nine of his assistant coaches on Thursday for the first time. Lots of stories coming from that on the site over the next few days. We covered a lot of ground with each one. I thought they were all impressive in their own way, uh, all interesting. There's lots of storylines we tackled, and those will all be written up on Trojansports.com, where you can also find the full video interviews and full transcripts of each interview if you just want to read through them. So we got you covered there. But the podcast is back in a big way this week because we welcome back into the show USC Executive Senior Associate Athletic Director Brandon Sosna, who is making his second appearance on the Trojan Talk podcast and is always a, uh, a fun conversation because he's, he's involved in just every crevice of USC athletics. He just has his hand in everything, so he's a guy that can speak to a lot, has a lot of good perspective, and just a fun conversation. So I've been trying to put this one together for a while. We found a time that worked. We, we did it. We recorded this on Friday. And I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Before we get to that, we do have a pretty ambitious podcast uh, plan for the month of February uh, and March, pretty much taking us straight up to spring practice. We don't have a date for spring practice yet, but we will have podcasts coming pretty regularly between now and then because there is so much to talk about as we actually get closer to playing football, to, to actual USC pads, practice, seeing what this offense and defense look like in action. Like everyone else, I can't wait for that. It's going to be a great few months of content, discussion, debate, intrigue, and, of course, coverage on Trojansports.com. We are also diving fully into the 2023 recruiting class. In the coming days, look for our signature, in-depth, thorough USC 2023 recruiting database which will pretty much break down who the Trojans are focused on in each position and where things stand, and it will be updated throughout the year. We have bulked up our recruiting coverage team with Matt Moreno, who has come aboard to be a West Coast recruiting contributor for a few of our rival sites, and my USC tag team partner, Jeff McCullough, who is going to dive into recruiting coverage this year and, and really give us a three-pronged attack on that. Jeff and I will be going to Mesquite, Nevada in a couple weeks, for the first, you know, real massive seven-on-seven tournament out west, it's uh, a great lineup of teams from Washington to Texas, California, obviously, Arizona. So we'll have a lot of coverage from that. And then the Rivals Los Angeles camp is at the, the end of this month, which is always well-attended. So uh, recruiting coverage is taking off. Team coverage is taking off. Now that we've talked to all the coaches and the podcast is now hitting its stride for 2022. And what better way to start – then with Brandon, who had an integral role in the hiring of Lincoln Riley, uh, the major domino that that has created this excitement in the first place. It's a couple months removed from that process, and we covered it pretty thoroughly, so I didn't want to spend the whole conversation just belaboring the hiring of Lincoln Riley. Uh, we get into it briefly, but I wanted to hit on other topics and, and cover a wide range of stuff and stuff that I know that our subscribers would want to hear about, have asked me about, you know, NIL uh, matters, the transfer portal, all kinds of stuff. So I thought we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And that'll be our one and only guest for today because that's all we need. It's a full show. But coming back in the coming weeks, look for a range of guests, some familiar, perhaps some new. We'll see what we got. All right, here we go. Okay, without further ado, let's do it. Let's welcome into the show USC Executive Senior Associate Athletic Director, Chief of Staff, and the only true Cincinnati Bengals fan who was living in Los Angeles before last weekend, Brandon Sosna. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. It's uh, hard to believe that it's been since 
May 2020 that I was on this podcast. It feels like it was just a couple days ago that we had a great conversation. So thanks for having me back. Yeah, this is your second appearance, and we ended the first one feeling there was more on the table, and you said, let's do a round two. And, uh, you know, we're both busy people. Schedules didn't align. But we definitely appreciate your time, and uh, there's so much to get into with you. And we will cover the gamut of a lot of topics that fans want to hear about. But let's just start with your weekend, last weekend at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. You were there to watch your Bengals move on to the Super Bowl. You had some good barbecue. Take me back to last weekend. What was that like for you as a fan, a lifelong Bengals fan, a suffering Bengals fan, to get to enjoy that moment? Yeah, well, what what an incredible experience that was. And uh, Kansas City is an, an amazing place to watch a football game. Uh, the environment there is fantastic. It's so loud. Um, the fans were incredibly respectful, uh, even after losing a – heart-wrenching AFC championship game. I felt uh, as much uh, congratulations and celebration from the Kansas City fans around me as I, as I did the Bengals fans. But uh, I don't know that I'll ever forget just the experience of standing in a visiting team stadium, uh, probably five, six, 7,000 Bengals fans uh, converging on the, the, the lowest rows of the lower bowl and uh, just celebrating together. And um, you know, I think sometimes when you work in sports, fans forget that you're a fan too. And uh, so for me, it was a really amazing experience, a little bit emotional, just thinking about 30 years as a Cincinnati sports fan with really not much to show for it. And uh, um, But I will say the the barbecue after the game it may have been just as good because I'm not a barbecue person and I was really skeptical uh, but I will uh, give you the credit with uh, your audience listening that uh, you delivered on what was one of the greatest meals of my entire life those who don't know I lived in KC for four years and if there's one thing that Kansas Cityans are proud of it's their barbecue proud and provincial about it and defensive about it and I do think it's the best barbecue in the world so I had to steer you right while you were there and I'm glad you enjoyed that you know with just one last thing on the Bengals, and we'll move on. I kind of joined the bandwagon. You know how I like to get on the road and visit all the recruits before they get to the campus, kind of tell their story, do a profile. Well, back when I was covering the Florida Gators, I went out to Fort Payne, Alabama, and sat in the steakhouse with Evan McPherson and his family for an hour and a half and got to know him. And this little guy, uh, kicker, you know, I knew he was good, but, man, he's become the story of the postseason. So, that's been the lens through which I've kind of enjoyed this Bengals uh, pl- playoff push. Yeah, well, I hope uh, Evan has a chance to kick another game winner this postseason because uh, the utmost confidence in him. He's uh, a special talent. And what, a, what I mean, imagine that being your rookie season in the NFL and these opportunities and delivering on it. He's uh, already cemented himself as a legend in Cincinnati, which is a pretty impressive thing to do in, in your first year. But I'm not sure Kansas City fans have as much pride uh, in, in, in their barbecue when uh, their favorite restaurants are overtaken by a bunch of visiting team fans celebrating beating them in the AFC Championship game. But, it, I mean, it was a big Bengals party at Jack Stack Barbecue. I'll tell you this, though. I don't know when I'll be back in Kansas City, but I would literally go back there just for another another round. Well, if you do, you have to come back to me because, I, again, I would say that's the third best barbecue spot in Kansas City. You've got to try the, the first and second on the list. And everyone has their own list. It's, it's, it's a great source of debate and argument for uh, Kansas Cityans, uh, even the short-timers like me. But, uh, yeah, that, that's high up there. I'm glad you enjoyed that experience. Yeah, my good friend John Dorsey was really uh... – encouraging me to try Q39, which yep. I, I yep. hear might be in that top two uh, in, in your rankings. It's number one. It's number one. and it's, uh, it's a newcomer. It wasn't even there when I lived there. I've gone back twice and experienced it and had the bump of the head of my my personal favorite for a long time, which is Joe's, what used to be called Oklahoma Joe's. But, uh, yeah, Q39, for those going to KC, that's the place to go. Well, anyways, uh, you had a fun weekend. It's been a fun couple months for – you overall for USC fans in general since the hiring of Lincoln Riley. I want to go back to that. I know it's a little bit in the past now, but I think USC fans have been basking in it ever since, so it's always fresh father. What was the best reaction or call you got from anyone, a colleague, a former USC player, just someone 
expressing their reaction to that news, which shocked everybody. And I'm sure you got a range of, of phone calls and reactions afterward. Yeah, it's it's a fun question. And honestly, the last couple months have been such a blur that two months ago, it's it's hard to pin down specifically. Um, one, one text message that I really enjoyed was from Rodney Pete because um, we were with Rodney at the uh, Notre Dame game this season, and he was on the sidelines supporting us, and I had an opportunity to meet him in person for the first time. And obviously at that at that point, there wasn't really much else that anybody wanted to talk about but the coaching search that was ongoing. And so um, we had a conversation about that. And, um, you know, anytime you engage in a conversation with anybody about it, you, you're disciplined on, on your side, but certainly anybody you're having conversation with has no uh, constraints on who they can talk about and what they can talk about. So it was interesting to hear from, from people and names that were consistently mentioned, but to kind of come full circle with Rodney from the conversation we had uh, at Notre Dame to um, getting that text message from him was really cool. It was honestly, it was, it was fun. Um, and I think the, the part that I enjoyed the most was just, not necessarily the people that I got to hear from or got to talk to, but the way that people felt about it and how energized and inspired they were by it. And so hearing and feeling that sense of enthusiasm and optimism from people who are so passionate about our program, who either played here and the success of this program has been built on their back or those that contribute significantly to support us, who we rely on to provide the experience to our student athletes. Um, to, to sense the just bliss that it brought to, to those people and, and to Trojans fans and USC alumni worldwide. Um, I don't think anything can top that. Well, especially since the, the previous two years, you heard the complete opposite and you heard it a lot. You heard it loudly. Was there, is it fair to say that there's any sense of relief or, or how would you characterize it just to, to transition so starkly from everything you were hearing your first two years here really to all of a sudden a 180 and, and everyone is just so uh, on board and believing in the administration, the direction, uh, just the totally different response. How would you characterize that? Yeah, I wouldn't characterize it as, as a sense of relief. Um, we have a lot of confidence in our vision and our plan for the program. And uh, I think you've probably heard me say this many times that um, – we accept and embrace passion in all its forms, and sometimes that serves us well, and sometimes uh, it may go against us. But to me, it there was never really an opportunity to contemplate any type of thought like that because we just had to put one foot in front of the other. And once you make a hire, there's so much that has to be done, and uh, hard. It, it's a, it's a really the hard work really starts. So um, I wouldn't say that I've given much thought to, to any of that. Again, it's, it's not about us. It's about doing the job. Um, and so we're always going to be focused on that because you, you really can't let the external tone, tenor, voice be your barometer of success. Um, so you really just have to, stay true to, to your plan and what you believe in and, and execute to the best of your ability and remember that you were put in these positions for a reason and um, you try to deliver. One of the things I appreciate most, and I was on a call with a group of our donors last week, was just the, the trust and belief that people had in us because you do hear horror stories about the ways that certain elements try to influence or um, disrupt the search process. And we were really given the latitude to execute the process as we mapped it out uh, with, with little interference. And so that was enormously helpful to us um, as we went through what was a, a, you know, a lengthy two-and-a-half-month process to arrive at this outcome. And after it happened, I think we, we tried to pry and get every detail out of you and Mike about how it went down. Now that a couple months have passed, though, is there any more color you can lend just to that pitch you delivered to Lincoln, which was obviously very compelling to get him to make a massive life-changing decision, sports-altering decision so quickly? Is there anything you can share from that discussion that stands out to you now a couple months later? 
you know, I wouldn't share any specifics of, of any conversations that, that we had, but I think what I can say more broadly is that we had the luxury of having two and a half months to prepare and execute our process. But what it also meant is that we had two and a half months to really have the spotlight of college football shining on us. And I think we were able to capitalize on that national audience as really a lot of attention was focused on what's USC going to do. I think we were able to leverage that into really um, reaffirming uh, the beliefs about USC's brand and potential and certainly uh, educating the college football landscape on all of the significant investments that have been made in this program, the level of commitment from the university, the alignment of our leadership group. And I, and I think there were a lot of dimensions to that from uh, Commissioner Klyovkov and his belief in how to lead the conference in terms of really just his overall emphasis on how we strategically align ourselves to be ready to participate in the college football playoffs. So I think just painting the picture of all of those factors together um, into a cohesive vision for the program was something that we had uh, a great opportunity to do with so many people watching. We've gotten to know Lincoln a little bit so far. We've had a few press conferences, but we're still kind of, uh, I guess, getting a true sense for him. You're around him much more often. Uh, every day, it's been a couple months. Kind of tell us, lend some perspective into what you've learned about him since hiring him, stuff that you didn't know before going into that process that you've uh, gleaned from being around him. Any good anecdotes, any good stories that kind of paint the picture of how he operates and who he is? I think my favorite one is actually that Monday that we uh, flew back from Norman. Um, we, we had an escort back to the USC hotel where uh, he and his family were able to drop off their belongings and I think we gave them about 45 minutes to an hour just to unwind and get ready for what was going to be a really long day and we, we dropped him at the hotel and by the time I got back to Heritage Hall he had texted me sorry to be a pain but and here we go in my mind I'm like we've been on the ground for an hour and I've already got a sorry to be a pain and uh, the reason that he was texting was that the, the pullover that, that we had provided just wasn't the right um, fit that he wanted, so he asked for a different one. And so I was like, if this is you being a pain, uh, we're going to get along really, really well. So I, I will say that uh, I've absolutely loved the opportunity to, to work with him and, and be a partner and resource for him as he's building this wonderful program at USC, this championship program at USC. He's, he's very gifted. He's very smart. He has a clear vision for what he wants to accomplish and how he wants to do things, but also very collaborative in his approach, extremely communicative um, with us. And so, you know, as an administrator, that's what you want from your coaches, right? I believe that our responsibility as administrators is to provide the support and the resources that are necessary to help our teams and our athletes win championships and, and achieve all of their goals. And so you want a great partner at, among your coaches, and he is that. And so I, I feel very fortunate um, that I have an opportunity to work with him on a day-to-day -day basis, and um, he's been uh, a true partner, and uh, he's somebody that uh, I want to support, not just because it's my job to do so, but, but because I care about him personally, and he treats us and everybody with such great respect. Um, and, you know, I think anybody wants to uh, follow somebody that uh, you believe in. And so we certainly have a lot of belief in him. Obviously, you spent a lot of time uh, vetting, researching, learning as much as you could about him to that point, even if you couldn't have formal conversations. But has anything surprised you now that you are talking every day, you are around each other so much, anything that you didn't know about him? No, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I think uh, Benny said it best that uh, he's still kind of grounded in the same way as when he was an 18-year-old. And I think that's been my experience, too, and just one of the many things that uh, I appreciate about him. 
I want to get into the staff, but since you mentioned Benny Wiley, uh, let me throw in a question there about him. We've obviously he's been with Lincoln uh, for a long time. In fact, you know, I went down to Muleshoe, Texas, to do that feature story on Lincoln's origins there. And as the story goes, Benny was the guy who pulled Lincoln off the field at Texas Tech his first year there and brought him to Leach's office to, you know, say you're not going to be a player here, but you want to be a coach. So he goes way back with him. We haven't talked to Benny yet. I've, you know, he. He seems like a very intense guy. What can you tell us about the off-season program and just what, what he brings to that uh, area of the operation? Well, I think it's well documented that uh, your your head strength coach is one one of the most important people in the entire program. And so I think his experience, his ability to relate to the athletes, his energy, his confidence, um, but most importantly, his alignment, just like the rest of the staff, and I think you heard a lot of that yesterday during their media availability, the alignment with holding to the standard that Lincoln has set for the program. And I think the importance of that standard being held in every aspect of the program is essential. And Benny's ability to do that in the role that interfaces with the athletes most is paramount. And so uh, I think we're fortunate to have somebody so experienced and uh, so talented and uh, with such a unique energy to him. In terms of assembling the staff overall, what was the general strategy? How did you guys go about it? Did Lincoln pretty much know who he wanted at most spots? Or did you and he talk and formulate a list and go, okay, here's some guys that we can consider for this position, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, certainly anytime you have a, a coaching change where you bring in somebody new, um, they're going to have coaches that they work with that, that they believe in who understand how their program operates and who they know can perform at the level that we expect. Um, so obviously we're very supportive of Lincoln as he um, brought a significant number of staff members with him from his previous institution. Um, and then, you know, as far as Others that were added to the staff, I mean, I think um, Lincoln was a great partner and very communicative, and at the end of the day, we wanted to support him and shared the same vision, which was to assemble the most elite coaching staff in the country, people that have been part of championship programs, that have been in the playoff, uh, have produced great players, um, have certain competitiveness characteristics that we value. And so um, I think we, we accomplished that. We got to meet all the coaches, like you said, on Thursday. I think everyone agrees you ended up in a great spot at all those positions. But there were some challenges to the process. And uh, I bring this up because uh, Lincoln addressed it, I think, in Antonio Morales' story, where you had Tashard Choice come on as running backs coach and get higher the way. You had Jamar Kane and the mix get higher the way. Is that just a new reality of, of doing business in college football where where things are kind of always tenuous and, and fluid that way? Or, or were those just outliers? Yeah, I mean, I think they call it silly season for a reason, but I wouldn't call that new. I think that's been a, a presence in college football for a long time. There's just a lot of change that happens in a condensed period of time, um, and every person has to make the best decision for themselves and their families. And I've spoken at length in the past about how these decisions are not as formulaic, I think, as some believe that they are. Um, but rather these are human beings making decisions on the basis of uh, things like family and fit and connection. And so um, I, I believe that the reality is the most important thing is that we want people that want to be here um, and we're not going to extend ourselves for those who don't. And so I think generally the coach transition process is really hard. Uh, you have coaches that are leaving. You have coaches that are coming on. There's contracts that have to be negotiated, but you also want coaches that you're hiring to be able to hit the road recruiting immediately, um, especially with the pressures that are created by the early signing period. So it's a com complex process, and sometimes you end up uh, on the right side of that, and, and sometimes, sometimes you don't. But at the end of the day, I think we uh, – assemble an elite coaching staff of people that all want to be here and believe in what we're doing. And that was the goal. 
Well, similar to what I asked you about Lincoln and, and what you've learned about him and his personality, like I said, we talked to those coaches for the first time Thursday. I think uh, we all had our takeaways and, and our first impressions. But what stood out to you about the assistants? Any, any personality traits really uh, jumped to mind as you've gotten to know them over the last few weeks and months? Well, they're a great group, and I thought they represented themselves exactly as they are yesterday. The, the themes of competitiveness and understanding and appreciating the standard that's in place. But I also thought, and something that I really appreciated listening them to, to them speak, was their understanding and recognition of the history and tradition of USC. Um, I, I think you heard multiple coaches talk about the lineage at their position and the uh, desire they have to uphold that tradition. And so um, I think that's a wonderful thing because we know how important that is at USC. Obviously, we're focused on 2022 and program moving forward um, but we always want to respect and appreciate that past and I thought that they did that uh, in addition to talking about um, themselves and their beliefs and what they value and position specific traits that are important and uh, a lot of the great depth and detail that I know your uh, subscribers love to hear. Yeah I definitely got that from from Sean Nua when I asked him you know what what allowed him to leave a very successful program where he was doing a great job at Michigan to come here. And then he, he talked about uh, his personal kind of connection to USC's history and, and that allure. I thought Brian Odom was the most intense of the coaches. This is my first impression. You know, obviously everyone knows that Lincoln Riley is going to get the offense going in the right direction and, and really uh, put up some some big stats there, but the defense is what has to improve for this program to move on. So that was kind of the focus for me yesterday was learning about those guys. What did he Lincoln kind of tell you about Alex Grinch and, and his faith in him and, and why it was a no brainer for him to bring him along with him and that he's the right guy to, to shore up that side of the ball. Well, I think you just start by understanding Alex's reputation in the industry, um, where he's been, in his past, where he's been sought after, the types of programs that have brought him in, the success that he's had in this league. Um, so I think Alex has established that really on his own. And then certainly, again, when you hire a coach like Lincoln Riley, they have people around them that they, that they trust and believe in, and, and you do as well on the basis of that. So I think that... Uh, it's exactly that, and uh, we're excited to have Alex here. He's got a bright future in, in the coaching profession, and he's made an immediate impact already, I think, in establishing the type of culture um, we want the program and the way that we evaluate players and the type of traits that we're looking for um, that fit the, the scheme and the philosophy. So um, I'm, I'm excited, and I think our, our fans should be too, about uh, the impact that he's going to make. In what ways have you seen him kind of set that culture and, and his expectations for things? Yeah, you know, it's just one of those things that you kind of have to be in the room. But listening, listening to him address his players, you can you can sense that. Um, and I think the style of play and just listening to him talk yesterday about the way that they want to disrupt routes and play fast and get upfield, I think all of those things instill an attitude and a mindset. But um, I think... You know, if, if others had the opportunity to see what we get to see on a daily basis, I think they'd feel the same way. For sure. Uh, it's, it's really been a uh, just a frenetic few months, and it's just been one thing to the next to the next. There was the coaching search. There was the uh, intrigue about who the staff was going to be, and then it went straight into transfer portal season, which has been uh, nonstop and, and, and really has, has made this not an off season at all. It's been very much an on season. Uh, ever since uh, the ball got rolling here, I have to ask you. It's been a, this last month was um, was an emoji filled uh, roller coaster <laughs> for some of your fans, and in particular, everyone I think kind of connected the dots and felt that Caleb Williams, uh, the quarterback, was going to make the move from Oklahoma to USC to rejoin his head coach. But it took it took a full month and it took a lot of suspense and a lot of reaction, and every time there was a transfer tease, all the fans and some of us media uh, who had our stories ready to go for weeks were like, okay, this is it. 
and then there was someone else, but someone also very impactful to the program. What was it like for you watching just the reaction to the whole Caleb Williams anticipation over the last month? Yeah, I, honestly, I don't, I don't pay that much attention to it. Um, certainly, my my phone does in terms of uh, the uh, inbound messages and calls. Anytime we would put up a, a fight on emoji, uh, so that was hard to ignore. But I think broadly, when it comes to uh, transfers, I think it's important to understand that now that this one-time transfer exception is in place. Um, these athletes are making a decision that uh, is is more permanent than ever when they transfer and they go somewhere new. And so um, that's not a decision that should or, or can be made lightly and respecting that process because it might be one year of eligibility, but it might be three or four um, that that someone is, is going to be spending it at a new school. And so you have to think about how how it fits your your style of play how it fits you academically culturally what is the stability of the program where are they competitively there's just a lot of different elements that these young people have to consider before making these decisions but they are so final uh in this new one-time transfer world and so i I think that it's just important to recognize that these are high pressure decisions that are being made in a condensed period of time often without some of the same luxuries that they get to experience as recruits where they can get to know coaches over a multi-year period. So it, it's it's a unique dynamic, um, but one that I think uh, is, is going to be a continuing and evolving presence in college football and uh, something that we'll, we'll further understand as we have more years of experience and more data on it. Yeah, it's, it's a good point, and it's, it's worth reminding everyone of that because – People just, uh, you know, think of a player and stats and fit and connections, and, and there is a personal element to it. It's very significant. You all stole the news cycle on Tuesday. It was national news. I know that a lot of what you all do is very strategic. Uh, how much discussion went into, okay, now that we know this is happening, how do we roll this out? How do we generate the most excitement around this announcement? Yeah, I don't think it's too different than, than any of the announcements um, that, that we make about uh, player acquisitions. I think they all followed a, a pretty similar pattern with fight on emojis and, and videos and, and graphics. Um, you know, certainly there were some external elements, specifically with Caleb, that uh, were more interested in, in that storyline uh, than maybe, maybe some others. But from our perspective, um, he's part of the team. Um, he's, he's one of the men in the locker room, and um, we, we want to make sure that all of our players are celebrated in the same way. So from our standpoint, um, you know, it very much followed the same, the same pattern as the others. For sure. One of the reasons why it's fun to have you on is because we can get into a wide range of topics because you're so immersed in, in every aspect of the operation, and there are things that, um, that we on the outside, I guess, maybe don't truly fully understand the inner workings of and and the transfer portal and the way it's evolved is one of them you know obviously usc has brought in 13 transfers has had 18 scholarship guys into the portal and lincoln riley talked about this is a, a unique year you know this is uh you know, him coming in and, and remaking the roster it won't be that like that every year probably but in general has the transfer portal become something different than you anticipated I don't think it became something different than, than we anticipated. Uh, and I think it's still going to continue to evolve over time. Uh, I think there's a supply and demand element to this that's going to uh, take stronger hold. But I thought Lincoln addressed it at his press conference on Wednesday that players that have been in college and have tape um, are maybe a little bit easier to evaluate. Uh, and also the reality I mentioned earlier that once that one-time transfer exception is used, um, those players are really locked in. And so I think there's some roster management strategy involved that lends itself toward transfers being more um, strategic in some ways. Um, but this is certainly a unique year with the, the coaching transition and um, the number of roster spots that, that we have open in a way that 
um, we're trying to build and enhance this roster that under Lincoln's direction. So um, I don't know that, it, that it's been that it's been different. I think it's great for the athletes. I do believe that ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the the one-time transfer is a positive for college football and particularly for the players to allow for that freedom of movement. I do think that there are some things that we can do um, to instill a little bit more competitive balance to it, but I don't I, I don't believe that uh, we should change the, the transfer portal. What would be your recommendations to with the competitive balance uh, regarding? You know, I think maybe there's been some discussion that I think makes sense, and I'm certainly not an expert on it, but with respect to transfer windows, periods of activity that can occur at, at logical points, maybe at the end of the season and after spring football, where that one-time transfer exception can be used. Because I think that the spring period has become such a point of emphasis and enrolling somewhere in the spring to be able to participate in spring football and increase one's chances of being able to play a more active role on the team. When, whereas before, with having to sit out for a year, maybe it wasn't quite as important to be able to do that. But I think there's also a component to this that we have to recognize, which is that um, there are academic responsibilities that, that are part of this. And so depending on kind of when you transfer and how long it takes and when you get admitted and when you get enrolled, um, you can, can potentially be behind from an academic standpoint. And so I think the balance of understanding the football ramifications, but also the student athlete ramifications as well to come up with a system that really works. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely changed the landscape of the game. We heard Lincoln uh, earlier on Wednesday talk about how you can lose a guy any day of the year. We heard Brian Edelman talk about how you have to really convince that guy that he's in the best place for development and being coached, or or if things don't go his way right away, he might leave. It's 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 changed the whole game. Uh, be interesting to see how it evolves, uh, as well as it'll be interesting to see how NIL evolves. And that's one of the main topics I wanted to cover with you because I get questions all the time on our Trojan Talk board, and I thought at one point I had a pretty good grasp on how this all worked, and now I just don't. And I'll start broadly. Obviously, you guys had many months to, to plan for it, to, to get ready for it, to kind of uh, gain an understanding of what it was going to be. Has it been what you expected, or has it evolved into something much more than any of us anticipated back then? I'm not sure it's either. Um, I think there's a perception that's been created about it that maybe doesn't necessarily mirror reality. Uh, I think a lot of people have an idea of, of what's happening somewhere that's maybe not exactly accurate. So I, I think just in the absence of, of really a centralized system for it, uh, there's just a lot of misinformation and inaccurate perceptions about what it is and, and how it works. Um, but ultimately, the ability for student-athletes to monetize their name and likeness is a great thing. And this is the first generation of student-athletes that's been able to do that. And we've seen some wonderful examples of really talented and bright athletes, football players, and across all sports being able to really leverage that. And I think it's a, a really cool thing, and I, I hope to see it continue to grow. That's the part we all understand. Here's an example of one I don't. And my my understanding going into it was that these deals were never supposed to be tied to playing for a certain school, and yet you have I won't even name the school, but you have an example of a nonprofit organization guaranteeing every offensive lineman that goes to this school fifty thousand uh, dollars. There's been other stuff like that. How how is that not kind of a pay for play situation? Yeah, I can't really speak to the specifics of of what might be happening at. at at other places um, and how they're maybe labeled by media or, or externally versus how agreements are, are actually constructed. Um, NIL has been one of the most, if not the most, drastic change in the history of college athletics. I think it's unfortunate that it was memorialized in a one-page memo from the NCAA about six hours before it became effective. Yeah. Um, so I think in a lot of ways we've 
we've created this confusion ourselves. But there are clear guardrails around pay-for-play um, in recruiting inducements and sham agreements, and uh, those things should be should be monitored and enforced. So break it down for us. What can a school do and what can a school not do in helping a student-athlete with their NIL? Well, all of that depends. So every state has its own NIL law or it doesn't have an NIL law, in which case it's up to the individual institutions to, to develop their own NIL policies. Um, so there's nothing from an NCAA standpoint that says the schools can or can't do anything so long as they're not directly compensating athletes for the use of their NIL and they're respecting those three guardrails. Um, but some states do restrict institutional facilitation or some schools restricted on their own due to uh, legal risks or other risks associated with Title IX or anything else. So um, it, it really is a patchwork and each individual institution, depending on the confluence of their school policies, state laws, and anything else, are going to have their own unique approach. It sounds like a massive headache for uh, people in your side of things to manage. Have you had to expand the compliance department for this, or is it just uh, a ton more thrown upon the shoulders of people who were doing the job that didn't involve NIL a couple years ago? I think that management of NIL by a university is a, is a shared responsibility. For example, California state law, um, which was the first NIL bill that um, was was passed, uh, wasn't the first that came into effect, but it was the first, California legislature was the first to pass an NIL bill, requires by law that student-athletes disclose their NIL activities. So our Office of Athletic Compliance is responsible for maintaining those and, and tracking those. Um, but it's a it's a shared responsibility among the athletics program, the Office of Compliance, um, and certainly we've had partners on campus from Trademarks and Licensing and the Office of General Counsel and numerous other places that have assisted in um, developing USC's NIL policy. So in general, I mean, this this is now a part of recruiting. It comes up on recruiting visits. I know that when you guys have had official visitors, there's been an NIL presentation. What's the general pitch of that the school or that the USC makes? How do you approach it with uh, prospective student-athletes? Well, I think we have the ability to highlight what makes USC unique in its position with, within the Los Angeles marketplace and the opportunities that – exist here. I saw a report yesterday of a school in our conference that's sending some athletes down to uh, Los Angeles for professional development pur- purposes for, for three days. And so we can do in 365 days for our athletes, but someone travels here to try to do in three days. So there's just some incredible inherent advantages for our athletes. And this is, you know, the, the media capital of the world. So I think those are, are the factors that make this uh, different for USC athletes and not just the ability to earn NIL compensation, which any athlete can do, but to really be an icon. So going back to the overall operation and then when Lincoln Riley was hired, he hinted in his press conference about maybe more facility upgrades along the way. You guys have spent a lot of time the last two years and just general infrastructure enhancements around the program things that maybe fans don't see on a daily basis behind the scenes stuff we've written a lot about it you know expansion of the recruiting staff uh even stuff down to you know the the, the groundskeeping of the practice fields and, and all of that what is the next step in that regard the next infrastructural upgrade that's needed and maybe some of those facility considerations that are at least being analyzed or considered this time well, i don't think our approach has changed from what it was over two years ago when, when Mike arrived and, and he was gracious enough to invite me to join him, you know, we want to have the best of everything. And so the answer is everything and always. Um, we want everything to always be at an elite standard. So uh, we're looking at all of it. Certainly want to rely on Lincoln and, and his priorities and expertise and his firsthand experience of what it takes to field playoff 
teams and championship programs um, and align that with, with what we have. And so uh, that process is ongoing all the time and those conversations are happening every day and um, we're, we're going to continue to look at everything. I wouldn't say that there's a next immediate priority, but there is a, a shared belief and vision in wanting to be the best and have the best of everything. Well, I guess even without getting into the specifics, when you all were having your conversations and he came aboard, were there certain things that he outlined that said, you know, these would be priorities for me? Certainly, we had conversations and gave him a platform to really help educate us and help us understand the things that he feels like championship programs need to, to achieve that standard. So um, that's that's been a part of of every conversation um, from the first one that, that we had on, on Zoom to uh, all those that we've had in the two-plus months since he got here. Well, overall, as we as we build toward the season, I think one of the areas of intrigue is going to be what the Coliseum looks like on Saturdays, what the, the fan response truly is once we get to games. What can you tell us about the ticket sales, season ticket response since Lincoln Riley has been hired? Well, it's been enormous. I mean, I think you've you've observed that just through uh, your interactions with your subscribers, and uh, we've seen it on social media and, and, and in the media, and heard it amongst our fans. Um, so we're expecting a, a huge response come the fall, and quite honestly, we're counting on that. Um, we to, to have a championship program. Um, it takes all of us, and so we're looking forward to that first Saturday in the Coliseum being a sold-out packed house, and that's how we want all of them to be and to have a great experience at the games and to have a, a competitive football program, and um, we're, we're experiencing that wave in, of momentum right now and that surge, and we expect that for the next seven months that's going to continue up until kickoff. Yeah, in my four years of covering USC, I've never seen a full Coliseum, which means I know you haven't either in, in your two years here. How, how, how far off do you think we are from maybe getting back to the true peak of, of what a Saturday in the Coliseum could be? I don't know. I think that's hard to say. This is obviously a competitive marketplace, um, and fans here have high expectations for success and how they're going to allocate their discretionary income and their dollars that they spend on on entertainment so we understand that we have a job to do and whether the coliseum is full or empty uh that mission doesn't change which is to win football games and we know that uh everything else will, will get taken care of from there if, if we do that well, we talked a lot about the football program the future of usc football but i've got to ask you about just your future and and obviously you you are a rising name in the business have been certainly being involved in maybe the the biggest hiring coup of the of the coaching carousel is going to put more spotlight on that what and i'll I'll ask this broadly so maybe it's something that you can answer what do you think would be the job it would take to to get you away from what you're doing here and to, to be the next step in your professional advancement and career I appreciate the question, Ryan, but it's really not about me. Um, I, I'm very much a put one foot in front of the other and and continue to work. Um, this job is so unique, and there are so many challenges every single day. It's really hard, and uh, all of my time is spent trying to accomplish what I need to accomplish day in and day out. I haven't really given any thought to anything like that, and uh, I'm just grateful to be a part of what we're building here uh, and have the, the small role that I do in supporting this historic program as as we try to get it back to where we know everybody wants it to be. A, a fair uh, and professional answer, as I expected. Just to kind of put, uh, put a bow on things and wrap up, looking back from where things, where this process started in mid-September to where you are now, how do you put it all in perspective and... I, I think the fans would feel this has all been a best-case scenario. Going back to when you started this process, what you were hoping to get out of it, to where you are now, how do you feel about how it's all come together? Well, I think it's just a validation of the approach. Um, we've spoken a lot privately and publicly about how everything we do is about increasing the probability of getting to a successful outcome. and up to you if you want to describe this as kind of the best case scenario, but everything we've done from 
November 2019 through to September to today has been about increasing the probability that we could achieve that best case scenario. So I think there's some pride in the validation of the approach and the philosophy. Uh, there's also the recognition of the fact that we haven't won any football games yet and we don't win football games in February. Um, so our focus, our tenacity, our motivation, our desire hasn't changed. It burns. Uh, we are our hunger. And so we're going to keep eating. Good stuff. Well, I have one more thing on my list here, and we have a few more minutes. So let me circle back. You mentioned George Klyovkov, new Pac-12 commissioner, earlier. Now that you've had some time to to work with him, communicate with him on conference matters, what has stood out to you about his approach and what gives you confidence about his direction for the future of the conference? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question for Mike, certainly. Um, but I can speak from my personal experience that I really enjoy the interactions that I've had with George. Uh, he was at a, a basketball game of ours uh, recently and had a chance to spend some more time with him. Um, but I think he has a really unique skill set. Uh, I, I really appreciate and, and admire his leadership style. Uh, he's very engaging. Um, uh, he listens, and I, he's got a lot of innovative ideas and set of experiences that suit him well for um, where we are right now and where we're trying to go. And we have a lot of confidence in him. And I know he's been a great partner to Mike uh, and, and to Dr. Folt. And uh, we're, we're glad that he's here. And we look forward to continuing to partner with him to help uh, the Pac-12 achieve its goals. And um, like we've talked about before, we understand our responsibility in that. And we don't shy away from it. And we know that USC is expected to leave, and that's what we intend to do. Good deal, good deal. Well, we're going to end where we started. I assume that you will be at the Super Bowl. Still working on it. Still working on it. Still oh. waiting on uh, something to come through for me. Oh, no. You, you have to be there. You, you went all the way to Kansas City for the AFC Championship game. Yeah, well, I got a whole big family that's looking at me to make sure that everybody can go. So, uh Probably, probably more pressure than than whatever role I had in hiring a football coach. I feel I'm sure that uh, my entire family that's booked uh, hotels and flights to LA for the Super Bowl and waiting on me for tickets. So uh, definitely, definitely the, the highest pressure situation that I've been in at least a couple months. Good stuff. Well, we thank you for your time, Brandon. Great to have you back on the show, and hopefully we can do it again in the future. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate all the work that you do and. Uh, how much time and energy you put into telling the stories of our athletes and engaging our fans. And uh, it's such an important uh, role that the media plays in, in doing that and being fair and objective. And so uh, many thanks to, to you and to your subscribers for their great passion and interest in our program. And we're going to do everything we can to continue to make them proud. Well, I appreciate that. And we're all excited about what's ahead. So very good. And, and thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Ryan. Fight on.